0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. So good to see you. Good morning. I uh, always look forward to returning here. I had dinner with Robin and Donna night before last. And um, I know that this is their sabbatical. They they look rested. Um, so I think it's time for them to get back and get busy. I hope he's not watching this. Again, it's so good to see you. Um, I, I hope I'm presentable. I got up at the crack of dawn this morning to drive in, and uh, my wife was not out of her coma to approve the way I was dressed. Uh, I will hear about it when I walk in the door, I'm sure, this evening. Um, a COVID nurse asked me the other day, said, uh, have you recently experienced a sudden loss in taste? And I said, no, I've always dressed this way. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke's gospel in chapter 24 and this passage that I'm reading is usually relegated to the time following the resurrection. But I think that it has relevance even for where we are right now. It's going to be a lengthy reading. I'll put you on notice for that. And um, if you are behind in your Bible reading, then in these verses that we'll be reading, you'll get caught up quickly. And I begin reading in verse 13. Looking sad. Then one, then one of them named Cleopas answered and said, Are you only, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Some translations refer to this as a stranger. And who did not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And They said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But when he, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And since these things have happened, moreover, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what a teaching that must have been. The word himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets, beginning to expound them and interpreting to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I'll stop there. Obviously, this particular text has so much texture to it until it really doesn't require a lot of elaboration or teaching. I just want to make some observations about it. Uh, have you ever noticed that quite often when we invite you to a particular text, we refer to it as a passage? And that's always been of interest to me. We call it a passage because the word passage is a, is a word also that describes a liminal space or a threshold or a place where we're leaving one place to go into another. This is another word for passage. And so, When we're reading texts like this, we ought to envision ourselves on this same road. I want to talk to you about the road to reality. The road to reality. And I want you somehow, if you can, to enter the psyche of these two individuals. We know one of them's, one of their names is Cleopas. It's not clear to us who the other person is. Some have speculated that this was a couple. It was Cleopas and his wife. Others have said it was just another disciple. We're not quite sure. Sometimes when there's ambiguity like that in Scripture and it's someone is not clearly identified, I have this sense that it is inviting me to be the other person. It is inviting me to take that walk with Cleopas. Because all of us right now find ourselves in ongoing discussions that seem to be leading nowhere. This is what we experience with the assault of the media. The discussion, the the narrative just keeps running, but it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. It seems to be creating a more exacerbated state of mind. It seems to continue to confuse people rather than bringing any clarity. Where is all of this going? When will things return to, say it, normal? And I think this is relevant in this particular text because they are asking themselves, in many ways, the same questions. To say that they were discouraged, disillusioned, disappointed, all of those words are rather weak in describing what they're dealing with inside. And so the only thing that they know to do is to try to talk it out. And isn't interesting, sometimes the more we talk, the more confused we become. And I think that's probably what was going on in this exchange. They're on a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem. Now, if they're walking at a leisurely pace, then we know that they probably could do that probably in a couple of hours. But they didn't realize that they were, for all intents and purposes, going to be ambushed by this person that appeared to be a stranger. Uh, if you're familiar with what John says about the resurrection appearances of Jesus, that he is regularly appearing in a different form or another form. I think what that says to us in our present condition, in our present state of mind, is that. Jesus may be intending on appearing to us in forms that have previously been foreign to us. I think if he is going to appear in the dilemma that we find ourselves in, then he is probably going to totally wreck our expectations. I mean, I want to ask you a question. If you could ask God one question, just one question. What would it be? I mean, I think like that. I mean, I'm not sure. Some of you are probably thinking, I'm not sure that I could condense it, that I could distill it to one question. But what would that question be? I like what uh, Rainer Maria Rilke uh a Australian poet says about questions. And I'm, I'm going to share this with you. It says, don't search for the answers, which could not be given to you now because you'd not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now, perhaps then someday far in the future, you will gradually without noticing live your way into the answer. The ego has this insatiable need for resolution, Right? I want to know why. I want to know when. I want to know how. This is, this is the way that we're wired. And that's okay as long as we remain in mystery and curiosity about that. I, you know, not having answers in the way that you want them quite often is the road that he has you on. If God answered every question that you had, and you've got plenty, don't you? Am I talking to the right people? Some of you are looking rather stunned. If God answered every question that we have, we still wouldn't be satisfied, would we? When we find ourselves disappointed with life as these two individuals does, um, most of the time, it's not because something in life has failed us. Rather, it's our expectations of life that have failed us. Well, it ought to have been this way. I, I, to understand it a different way, when we find ourselves most disappointed with God, God has not failed us, but it's our expectations of God that has failed us. You should have done this, or why isn't it turning out that way? I probably said it here before, but I think it fits perfectly in what I'm sharing with you at this point. I believe, and this is troubling to a lot of people when I make this statement, because I can see the reaction quite often. I believe that our suffering, suffering which is inevitable, by the way, and there's not many people that are, in my opinion, doing a very good job of addressing how to process suffering. But I believe that our suffering, which is inevitable, is exacerbated as a result of us having an unhealthy attachment to expected outcomes. Should I say that again? If suffering is inevitable, and it is, these two individuals here are suffering. You know, we we don't get out of this human experience without suffering. I'm not saying that we pray for it. Or that we even allow ourselves to become self-absorbed and aggrandize our suffering. Because most of America right now has a wound identity. Think about that. When you think about all of the rhetoric that is constantly swirling around us, it usually comes from a victim mentality, doesn't it? Because we're all proficient at scapegoating. I mean, this, this is as old as the garden itself. Because when they are confronted with their transgression, what does Adam say? It's the woman that you gave me. And that scapegoating mentality has continued throughout all of human history, hasn't it? We have to have somewhere to place blame. Are you still there? This is part of the experience that we're having as humans. You say, well, I don't believe in suffering. I believe in victorious living. I do too. I do too. But that does make me immune to suffering, whether it's mentally, physically, relationally. Come on now. Isn't it true? So what is, the, you know, what is the answer to this? The answer as far as I'm concerned is what am I going to do with my pain? If pain is inevitable, what am I going to do with my pain? And I like what one Franciscan friar says. He says, if we don't learn to transform our pain, we will be transmitters of our pain. If we don't learn how to deal with our own personal disappointment, then we will become super spreaders of it. Didn't know that was going to come out, but I think it works. I'm not trying to be insensitive at all. I I had someone from New York a, a few months ago, and you understand so much is lost in translation, you know, on these social media platforms and, I'm very, very circumspect when I'm framing what I'm going to post. If, if, if you follow us at all, and I'm not trying to garner new followers, but if, if you follow me at all, which quite honestly, social media has become a necessary evil almost. And some of you know what I'm talking about. But I am very, contemplative about what I say because I know how much is lost in translation when somebody reads it. It happens all the time. I get this pushback from somebody and I'm thinking, you didn't really hear what I said at all. But they thought they did. Is this making sense to you? So one soundbite out of this particular post I asked this question, who is responsible for your pain? And I responded by saying, you are. Oh, and this is a friend of mine, uh, but he is a typical New Yorker. Do we have any here? He's going to challenge everything, and we're friends. He said, wait a minute. He said, I got a problem with that. I said, listen, you're misunderstanding me. I'm not saying that whoever is the perpetrator, I'm not saying that the person that is the perpetrator of the pain doesn't have responsibility. They are not without culpability, but I am saying it has happened. So it happened. So I either identify as a victim. Or I say, all right, it happened to me. Now, what am I going to do with this pain? Hence, I become either a transmitter or one who transforms pain. I feel myself being pulled into this direction of being talked to talk about this victimhood mentality that has become so popularized and is polarizing, as you said earlier. Maybe we ought to look to the ultimate victim. Who was the ultimate victim? Jesus. Jesus. absorbed all of the hate, the vitriol. He absorbed all of the rejection. He absorbed all of the betrayal. He absorbed all of the hatred, didn't he? And he transformed it through resurrection. That... He is the ultimate victim. This is what it looks like to be a real victim. But now you're getting me off the subject, so. So they're walking along. They're discussing what has happened, trying to make sense of it. And did you notice it says that their eyes, when Jesus appears, they couldn't see him. Now I've had a number of questions about this text for many, many years. How could they not recognize him? I'm not satisfied with some of the translations that suggest that they were under, you know, some sort of spell. You know, I I do believe that they were to some degree under a spell of disillusionment and discouragement. You know, when you get in that state of mind, it's difficult for you to see anything positive. Positive. It's difficult for you to see anything that has potential or hope in it. Isn't it true that we're all blind to what we're blind to? Does that make sense to you? That we're blind to what we're blind to. And see, what had happened was that there was a shift that had taken place earlier that morning before the sun came hemorrhaging over the eastern horizon. And Jesus walked out of the tomb unaided. The stone was not rolled away so that he could get out, but so that they could get in because he will walk through walls for the next 40 days and travel at the speed of thought. And all this had happened at the break of day. Remember, Mary had come early to the tomb. In John 20, she'd come early to the tomb And she was suffering from a sort of blindness as well. Because when she is squinting in the early morning light, she believes her mind is playing tricks on her. Is That can't be true. I remember the stone three days ago was was put there and sealed. And where are the guards? Where are they? Well, they are laying on the ground in a trance. When she finally gets close enough and she peers into the tomb, What she witnesses is spectacular, but then she turns. And again, the sun had not risen yet. So in the midst of the morning, she turns and she sees a figure, the silhouette of a man in the early morning darkness. And she looks at him and John says that she supposed that he was the gardener. See, she was not able to perceive even in this new place who he really was. She was, as a friend of mine says, surprised by the supposition. It was not until he spoke to her that she recognized him. The truth is she was right to begin with. She thought he was the gardener. Well, everything started in the garden and it will culminate in the gardener. And it was he who was first a gardener before we came to know him as a carpenter. What I'm trying to help you to see here is just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's reality, not reality. The way we see things are not the way they are. It's just the way we see them. And it's not until we are able to have this new recognition that we are able to see things as he has seen them all along. There's something referred to as scotoma. Have you ever heard of that? Scotoma It's a condition involving a partial loss of vision or a blind spot in an otherwise normal field of vision. This is what they're experiencing. And see, we don't realize how discriminating our minds are because our minds choose to see what it wants to see. I hope this is having relevance for you right now because we have images that are being projected. I mean, we live in screen land, so to speak, don't we? You carry one in your pocket, And you can't escape them. Even when you go to the DMV, there are screens everywhere. And I don't mean for this to have a conspiratorial tone to it, but it is training you to see what the world system wants you to see. It wants you traumatized as these two individuals were. Because trauma has a way of blinding us to a greater reality. But isn't it beautiful that Jesus so kindly and so humbly walks up beside of them and asks them, it it's, it's, reflects his humility and I think also his humor. You probably wouldn't find this to be humorous, but I do. When he just steps up beside them and he gets in the rhythm of their gate and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? As if he didn't know. Are you a stranger? Have you never been to Jerusalem before? Do you not know what has happened? No, why don't you tell me? And they proceed to tell him about what had happened to him. But again, the way that they saw it, it was a tragedy. The way that they saw it, it was traumatizing. The way that they saw it, was this was a hopeless situation. So he lets them talk. I've always found that interesting in the conversations that I have with him, uh, because he is so gentle and so humble and willing, you know, like when you're having a conversation with somebody that you highly value and respect and you're trying to find the rhythm in the conversation. Some people that's very difficult, correct? but you're trying to find a rhythm in the conversation, the back and forth, the volley. But it was, if it's somebody that you really love and value and highly esteem, you find yourself, no, no, you go first, correct? No, 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 you, you go first. It's almost as if Jesus walks into that, finds the rhythm in the conversation. See, he wants to find the rhythm in the conversation about the crisis that we're in right now. And he'll let you talk about it even though the way you see it is not the way it is because he knows that what you focus on will always determine what you miss. But he lets you talk. I've always found that interesting in my conversations with him and then he very simply begins and subtly begins to enter my own thoughts. For those of you... That have been in this place where you've had original sin and depravity to beat you over the head for most of your life and you don't have any sense of any original goodness. I want you to understand that many of the times when you are really connecting intimately with him, it's because he has just, he has allowed you on your tirades. He has allowed you just to vent and then very humbly and subtly, he just slips his thoughts into your conversation. How beautiful is that? I want God to talk to me. Would you please talk to me? He probably is. Our minds, again, are very discriminating. and They choose to see what what we want to see. Glimpses of grace and goodness are often hiding for us in the corners and the crevices of our lives in the peripheral areas. Then he begins to talk to them, I already referenced this, he begins to talk to them about himself beginning with Moses and the prophets, but they still didn't see. I've often wondered why he didn't just pull his tunic back a little bit and let them see his back that had been mangled and scarred. Why didn't he say, hey, guys, uh, you notice anything different about my feet? Did you happen to see this? Why didn't he do that? Because after all, he, he will do that later, won't he, with Thomas? Here, put your hand in there. And I, if if there's anything we take away from that particular story, it's to let all of us know that you can still, you can be wounded and still resurrected. But he doesn't do that. He meets them where they are. I, you know, this is going to be problematic for a lot of people. I mean, I have great value for this book. I've been a student of it all of my life. But I will tell you, that quite often people are not interested in your stock, memorized, rehearsed answers from a chapter and verse, because that wasn't opening their eyes. No, I, I didn't show irreverence to the scripture, but you do understand that the scripture says itself, that he came in the volume of the book. It's not black letters on a white page. It's not until, you know, he said his words are spirit and they are life in John 6, 63. It is not until he enlivens them. So in all this amazing Bible study they get on this seven mile walk, they still didn't get it. They still didn't see it, did they? What was the trigger point? What was the trigger point? It appears to them that he is just going to walk on. And uh, I think maybe, you know, we could spend some time there talking about that. He is not willing to continue to walk with us in our disillusionment. He's going to walk on and you can walk with him or you can stay back there in that place. That making sense to you? He's going to walk on. But now they they begin to understand there's there's something here that is vibrating beneath the surface, and we're beginning we're beginning to sense it, and they compel him to stay. And so when he sits at the table, this is where it happens. You know, we Pentecostals would call this communion. If we were more liturgical church, we'd call it the Eucharist. So he sits down. And as the guest, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And it was in that instant that their eyes were opened. Why do you think? Why do you think that was the case? Because if they had been disciples of his for years, they recognized that that was the prescription that he used every time he touched bread, when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, when he is in the, when he's, in the room with them, with the Last Supper. He, he follows that same pattern. He takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. You say, well, you know, is that just some sort of liturgical practice? No, I think it is reflecting to us what life is all about because Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, took on flesh, or as he would refer in the in the upper room, take eat this is my body, which is broken. The word bread and flesh are synonymous in that context. On so he took on flesh. He was blessed, wasn't he? Because in the waters of the Jordan River, when he is baptized by John the Baptist. And he emerges out of the water, and the dove descends upon him. There's a voice that comes from heaven. God breaks 430 years of silence. He had not spoken since Malachi had said that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. So for over four centuries later, God breaks his silence, and he says, "This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased." So he took bread. He was blessed, but he took bread and was blessed so that he could be broken. Why? So that he might be multiplied. See, we, we miss the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. We just think that it was a benevolent God being concerned about the gnawing hunger of a multitude of people. No, it was revealed to them. He even said in John chapter 6, remember, after he performed the miracle and they were astonished by it, he said, I am the bread that your fathers did eat in the wilderness. I'm trying to break you out of the scarcity mentality, this slavery mentality that your ancestors lived in. That's the reason why I performed this miracle in a wilderness, in, a, in the context of the same place where your parents, who I was trying to deliver from a slavery mentality. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it to them. May I suggest to you the reason why you incarnated as well? The reason why you took bread, the reason why you became a sacramental experience, not just an existential one. You became a sacramental. What is what am I mean? What am I saying when I say sacramental? See, most people relegate that, don't, don't they, to the, the ordinances of the church, the ordination or the or the bread and the wine. But no, everything is sacred to him. I mean, we've really got, I think that there's an awakening coming. There really is an awakening coming that is going to jar us out of our disillusionment and our discouragement and our wondering as to this didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out, but it is only going to happen in those moments where we realize that our brokenness is not something that he is doing to us, but something he wants to release through us. Otherwise, we spend our entire human experience running around trying to have spiritual encounters and not realizing, as Meister Eckhart said, that you are not a human being here in pursuit of spiritual experiences. You are a spirit being having a human experience. And the world is broken right now. And the world is blind right now. And it is leading us to what happened to them burning hearts, hearts that burn again, restored passion and compassion. If there's anything that this road to reality that we have been on as they were should be leading us to is to experiencing greater levels of compassion. Think how counterintuitive that is In today's culture, think about how counterintuitive that is. That kindness and compassion and empathy, not just sympathy, but empathy is really the core values, isn't it, of the gospel, the good news. In the midst of all the bad news. Sometimes it takes a long road to get there, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I, I refuse. I I am concerned, but I will not be consumed by the narrative. Thanks for that one person out there, wherever you are. I'm not in denial. I'm not, you know, I'm not living in some some kind of Pollyannish world. But I do understand the truths of the gospel. I do understand that when it seems like everything is falling apart, it is only so that something greater and better can come together. It has always been in the cycle of death, burial, and resurrection. It has always involved brokenness. I'm not talking about allowing myself to justify my victimhood. No. Why was I broken? Why was I blessed? So that I could be broken. So that I could be given away. Because if there's anything that we need to learn about this, again, this human experience is that this, you know, life is not a sexually transmitted disease. Life is hard And we're learning that. You know, this, these are truly apocalyptic times, aren't they? And that does not necessarily signal. And it, you know, that's that's been a very convoluted word. It, it is not talking about you know that some cataclysmic event that is out there lurking on the horizon. No, when, whenever we use the word apocalyptic, we're talking about an unveiling. And what is ha- what has been happening in the last few months is that there's been an unveiling of who we are, so that there can be an unveiling of who He is. I want you to stand. In all my ramblings this morning, I hope that I've connected with you at some point. I do believe, as Cleopas and his companion, that we are on the road to reality. Not to further disillusionment. And I just want to pray this morning before we close. This is what I'm asking for myself. I'm asking that my heart would begin to burn again with passion and compassion. Anybody else desirous of that? I'm not just wanting to feel better about myself. Because life is not about you and it's not about me. The reason why he incarnated is because he was so, and this is not a good word, but I'll use it anyway in reference to God. He was so desperate to connect with you. Even though you were made in his image, he could not connect with you in the way that he desired because he couldn't feel what you feel until he came in the skin that you're in. So maybe that's the reason why you incarnated so that you could have the ultimate experience that the rabbi had to experience empathy because there's, there is the threshold of transformation. There's, there's where things begin to transform. They couldn't wrap their mind around it So they had to allow their heart to engage it. And most of the things that your mind is desperate to understand, that is a vortex that will suck you deeper and deeper down. For it's with the heart man believes, the scripture says. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. So I'm not asking you to take a pledge, but I'm asking you to pray over your own heart. Because this is where you live, right here, not up here. How many of you are tired of living in the headspace? Anybody? This is where you really are, right here. All these personas you said you was going to pray. I am. All these personas that you project, and you know, it allows you to navigate through what you think is reality is because you've learned how to act and react to people around you. And it wouldn't be terrible if you lived your whole life and we never got to really meet the real you. Tired of living like an imposter? Go ahead. We know that this is the realm Where you are home. Not up here in our vain imaginations. Not up here where we worry, where we stress, where our imaginations run wild, but here. And we ask that our hearts would burn again. Show us the great revelation of the order of breaking bread that you took bread, you blessed it, you broke it, and you multiplied it. And now you are taking us in this Eucharistic experience of life. You took us, you blessed us, but now even in the brokenness, there is a blessing. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that. Thank you for healing. You said that you'd come to heal the brokenhearted. That's what you were anointed to do. And I thank you for that this morning. And we all acknowledge that we are on the road to reality. We may feel like that we're going in the opposite direction of where we should be going as they were. But eventually it will bring us back. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Bless you.